Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, The Immortality of the Soul. This February 2011 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the current head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office of the Archdiocese of Sydney. Why this topic? Actually, it's been a topic I've been aware of, in a sense, one that should be done, uh, spoken on. For at least a dozen years I've had this in mind to do it, but I never got around to do it, and I never got around to writing a chapter on it. But uh, at the moment I'm engaged in a rewriting of Defend the Faith, and that's a very extensive rewriting. 27 chapters have been rewritten and I'm adding 10 new chapters. I've finished six of those new 10, and this is one of the six that I've done. I've included this topic to one day appear in the new Defend the Faith book. The immortality of the soul, of course, is very important for us as Christians and very important for us as Catholics, particularly when you look at our liturgical and pious practices. We are constantly praying. This is just one example of why it's important. We are constantly praying for the dead. We hold masses for the dead. We have funerals for the dead. And we're invoking the dead in a sense. They're dead, but they're alive in Christ. We're invoking the saints and asking them to pray for us on a daily basis. Now, think about it. If the dead are actually dead in the sense that their souls are extinguished at the point of death, then there's no one up there to say prayers for, no one in purgatory needing prayers and penances and sacrifices, and no one to intercede for us. It's a total calamity from the Catholic point of view. So, more so than other Christians who believe in the immortality of the soul, Catholics must defend this teaching. Not just simply to defend Catholic teaching, of course, but to defend actually what the scriptures really do say on this topic. And tonight you're going to hear a lot of scripture. You're going to come leave this hall today or tonight knowing for sure that we are immortal beings and we're not going to be dying in the sense of being extinguished or fall into some sleep slumber for some, you know, thousands of years, etc. Anyway, it's interesting that this topic came up specific for me Quite recently, last year, I was invited to um, to attend, sorry, to give a talk at Macquarie University at their Christ Week, and there was a couple of Seventh Day Adventist fellows who turned up. I didn't know they were Adventists at the time. Afterwards, we had a chat, and only in the course of our discussion was it that they made clear to me that they were Adventists. And in the course of our discussion, this very topic came up. And they quoted to me from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7. And they read that quote out. And, it, and I've never heard this argument before, but I'll put it to you right now. Here's Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And man became a living soul. So here's the argument. Man 
when God breathed into Adam, became a soul. For the Adventists and the Jehovah Witnesses, for example, man doesn't have a spiritual soul. Man is a spirit. Man is a living soul. And this is, it's rather subtle, but it's important. Because for us as Catholics, what do we believe about the human person? That we are made in the image and likeness of God. That's again the book of Genesis. How are we in the image and likeness of God? Is it because of our bodies? No, because we know that God is not restrained by having a body. God doesn't have a physical body like we do. So it's not our bodies as such that make us in the image of God. Our bodies make us in the likeness of God because all creatures reflect God in one or more of his infinite perfections. So our bodies are likewise, likewise do that because they are creatures. But our bodies only make us in the likeness of God. It's what makes us in the image and likeness is our spiritual soul. The Catholic Church believes that we are a composite being, a mixed spirit, a spirit mixed with the body. So we have Adam, he's been formed from the dust, and when God breathes into Adam a living soul, he's adding something to the physical side and creating a human who's a composite of body and soul. And it's a spiritual soul. And it's that spiritual soul, spiritual soul meaning can live, can be and do and act and live without a body. It's that spiritual soul that makes us in the image and likeness of God. What we have to defend tonight is the proposition that our bodies and spiritual souls are distinct. Yes, they're united in the one, to make one human person. Human nature is only complete when it has a physical body and the spiritual soul united together. But nevertheless, we must defend the proposition that the human body and the human spiritual soul, they are distinct, and that after death, the human spiritual soul lives on. One, that it doesn't just, say, fall asleep, extinguish for a temporary period for the just, and or two, extinguished permanently, forever, for the unjust. Okay? And therefore, what flows from that is to defend the teaching that those who have died since Christ and those who are dying today and those who are dying at any point before the second coming, that they still live on in their spiritual souls and that they live on enjoying the beatific vision, either enjoying the vision of God face to face, or suffering the torments of damnation in hell. Because all these things flow as a consequence. Now again, here's another obvious point for us to mull over before we look at scripture. If the human soul is extinguished at death, not only is no one in hell, but no one's ever go, going to go to hell because these same people advocate that hell is not the place of the damned with the demons and the fires of torment, that hell is actually the grave. So they'll be arguing that there's no one in hell, only demons in hell. 
And you're probably thinking at this point, these beliefs are ridiculous. Because scripture's just full. I know, I know scripture's full of quotes that can prove that the souls live on after death and that they go to judgment and they go to heaven or they go or they go to hell and that there are people in hell, etc. I know those scriptures exist. Okay. Can you quote them off the top of your head now? You'll find it'll be difficult to be quoting them chapter and verse. Well, I'm going to give you many chapter and verses today in defence of these of the immortality of the soul. Of course, those who argue against the immortality of the soul, of course say it's not biblical. So where did it come from? The usual suspects. It came from paganism. It was, and it was the Catholic Church responsible for bringing these pagan notions that derive from the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And it's actually called metempsychosis the concept of the transmigration of souls that the pagans have or had, these civilizations, Egyptians, Babylonians, believe that when you die, the soul lives on and it, you know, then it, trans, it continues in a journey and, and, and ends up in becoming another living person. Transmigration. The soul migrates. Migrates from one person to another or one body to another. And somehow the Catholic Church took this up and imported it into Christianity. And the main culprits are Platonic and Neoplatonic Christian philosophers or writers such as Oregon and St. Augustine of Hippo. Alright, now let's start. I'm looking at a whole host of verses, and I'm sorry I have to do a bit of reading here directly of the verses, and then we'll highlight the obvious points. So, Nevertheless, despite what is claimed by Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses, etc., Scripture clearly speaks of the human soul or spirit in terms distinct from the body. Just to remind us at this point, the Adventists say that you are a living soul. The living body is the living soul. You're not a composite of body and spiritual soul. But the scripture points to the two being distinct. Where? Matthew 26, 41 as a starting point. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a distinction between the spirit and the flesh. Luke 12, 19-21 And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now what's God requiring of this fool? Your soul is required. So what does that imply? He's going to die that night in bed. His soul is going to be taken by God to judgment. you wake up the next morning not him, but his wife or whatever, will find him in bed with just the body. 
2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day. So there's an implication there again. What's the outer nature? Our bodies are wasting away. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel the wasting away beginning. I've spoken before about my hips, my ankles, my left knee, my back, got the chiropractor appointment. You know. I'm beginning to waste away. But you can be 110 and your body can be frail, but your spirit, you can still be zealous and enthusiastic and have your wits about you. And this is what St Paul again is making this distinction. The body's wasting away. The outer nature, but our inner nature is renewed every day. And that's the, what the, God does. The grace of God does with us through sanctifying grace. Renewed every day. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. So again, the distinction between body and spirit. They're not one and the same for St. Paul. St. Paul again, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have three there mentioned. What is this? So we might have to have a bit of further discussion here. Now we're quite obviously aware now of the distinction between spirit and soul, but St. Paul, sorry, spirit and body, but St. Paul says here, soul, spirit and body. Or spirit, soul and body. So let's just stop here for a moment and get this a bit clear. Is the soul different from the spirit? No. You don't have two spiritual entities in you as one human person. There's one spiritual entity in you. It is a soul, and it's a spiritual soul. What makes our soul of the... When you look at other creatures, plants and animals, yes, they have souls. They can, they can grow, nourish, grow, reproduce. They have souls, but they're material souls. They're dependent on the body. You kill the plant body, you kill the animal body. The, the soul of the animal, the soul of the plant dies with the body. We have one soul, and it's spiritual. You kill our body, we're arguing it lives on. But see, the spiritual side of our soul are the spiritual powers, intellect and will. Plants and animals don't have intellects and wills. We do. And that's what makes... So we have other... The soul is one. The soul doesn't have material parts. It's not composed and put together in parts, but it has these aspects to it, which we differentiate. Okay? So the lower powers, the lower appetites, emotions, passions... The base of those are in our soul, but the intellect, so our powers to know, understand, judge and love, they're based in the higher part of our soul, the intellect and the will. 
Now, together these verses speak of the spirit as something prone to conflict with the flesh. It can be one and the same. Spirit is winning, but the flesh is weak. There's a distinction, there's a conflict. Our outer, that is the body, and inner, the soul, natures, as capable of moving in opposite directions, of decay and renewal, and repeatedly call upon us to cleanse our bodies and spirit and keep them both blameless. How can such distinctions be made if the soul and the living body are one and the same thing? Alright, that's by way of introduction. Let's have a look at the second objection. Scripture is clear that at death the soul is extinguished. It no longer knows anything, for it no longer exists. Where is this clarity in Scripture to support this opinion? Well, before I get to that Scripture verse, which is in Ecclesiastes, we'll make that distinction again between two categories of persons who assert that the human soul does not continue to live consciously on after death. The hypnopsychites. The hypnopsychites believe that the departed soul passes into a state of unconsciousness at death. The thanatopsychites believe that the departed soul is either permanently that is in the case of the wicked, or temporarily, in the case of the just, destroyed. The latter, the thanatopsychites, who have just issued this objection, objection 2, would rely on Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 to 6. Quote, now listen to this. It's rather compelling at first. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. But the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And they have no more forever any share in all that is done under the sun. Okay. Seems to be complaining at first, but really... Is this verse saying that the soul is extinguished, is destroyed at death? No, it's really just saying, and I'll go through the verse again, that the soul has nothing to do anymore with life on earth. For the living know that we will die. Well, nothing special about that. We all know we're going to die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. I would argue that the dead know nothing of, 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 in a sense, of what's happening here on earth because they're detached from what's happening here on earth in the understanding of in Old Testament times. We don't necessarily have that belief now in New Testament times. The memory of them is lost. That is, we on earth forget about the dead. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. That is, when they were loving and hating and envious on earth, the impact of that is forgotten and perished. doesn't impact on us anymore. 
they have no more forever any share in all that is done under the sun. That is, they have no more role on earth. That's the ultimate point of this passage. Now let's look at a whole host of quotes that really clarify this for us. Absolutely. Psalm 116, we'll start with the Old Testament verse. Psalm 116.15 Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How can the death of the saints be precious in the sight of the Lord if the soul ceases to exist to death? With every one of these verses, I'm going to ask these rhetorical questions. Luke 16, 22, 25. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is in comfort here and you are in anguish. I could end the talk right now. It says it all there. Here are two who have died, the rich man Dives and the poor man Lazarus. Does the scripture say they are extinguished? Neither the good or the evil is extinguished. They both live on without their bodies. One is taken by the angels to Abraham. Abraham is dead also, by the way. He's not extinguished. What happens to Dives? He's in torment burning down there, asking for a a finger dipped in water. It's all over. The discussion is over. The human soul at death is not extinguished, either for the just or the unjust. How can Lazarus and the rich man be carried? See Father Abraham, call out, be comforted, and suffer in anguish if the soul ceases to exist at death. But I'm not going to let you off that light. We still have a lot more quotes to go through. Luke 9, 29-31 And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered, and his raiment became dazzling white. Of course, this is Christ's transfiguration on Mount Tabor. And behold, two men, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. How could Moses and Elijah, who both died centuries before the coming of Christ, appear in glory and speak to Jesus if the soul ceases to exist at death? John 11, 25-26 Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? How can those who die believing in Christ never die? 
If the soul ceases to exist at death. St. Paul, Romans 8, 38-39 For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can death not separate the Christian from the love of God? if the soul ceases to exist at death. 1 Peter 3.18-19 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. How could Christ after his own death, preach to the spirits in prison if the soul ceases to exist at death. Now, these are where are these spirits? They're in Abraham's bosom. They're the great men and women or ordinary men and women of Old Testament times, from Adam onwards, who died faithful to the covenant they lived under. Couldn't get to heaven until Christ ascended into heaven to open the gates of heaven. Where were they? In prison. Well, they were a detention room, so to speak. They were with Abraham, a waiting room, to be more precise. So, are they extinguished? Of course not. Well, even more so in the Christian era. If the Old Testament saints lived on after death in a waiting room, even more so, a fortiori argument here, the Christian era, the saints of Christ who die, by no means are extinguished they get something even greater because the gates of heaven are now open. We still move on. It's not over yet. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud cry, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How could martyred Christians be under the altar in heaven? and cry out with a loud voice in heaven to God for vengeance if the soul ceases to exist at death. Revelation 14, 13 And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. How could the dead be blessed and have their deeds follow them if the soul ceases to exist at death? I think you're probably realising by now, with at least half an hour to go, that the scriptural evidence is already staggering, overwhelming, in favour of the idea that the human spirit is is distinct from the body and lives on after death, both for the just and the unjust. Third objection... Since the soul is annihilated at death, 
there's no eternal punishment for the wicked. One of the favourite objections of the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, these people, Jehovah Witnesses, etc., the same old line of argument. The idea that there's eternal hell with demons and flames is a pagan concept. It's not really scriptural. Yes, well, I've written another chapter on this and we've given this talk before. We can go on for another two hours. In actual fact, Jesus Christ and St John the Baptist spoke more on hell than on any other topic. When you tally up the number of quotes specifically relating to the afterlife and eternal punishment. I'll give you a sample here. I've put more than enough here, but we'll give you one from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I'm rebutting the idea specifically that the soul, that there's no eternal punishment for the damned. Matthew 10.28, a short one. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Again, just stop there. That deals with our first objection. There's a distinction between the body and the soul. Okay, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's Matthew's Gospel. There's a whole host of others from Matthew's Gospel. I'll just give you the references. Matthew 8, 11, 12. Matthew 13, 41, 42. Matthew 18, 7 to 9. The famous last judgment of Matthew 25, 41, 46. Then we've got Luke 22, 24, which we've already read. The poor man who's carried to Abraham's bosom, Lazarus, and Devez finds himself in burning torment. Revelation 19.20, let's read this one. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, who wrought signs before him, wherewith he seduced them who received the mark of the beast, and who adored his image. These two were cast alive into the pool of fire, burning with brimstone, where they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. Cast alive, so that rebuts the idea that the human soul is extinguished at death. The idea that the damned, their, their hell is the grave and not the fiery abode below is also directly rebutted. They're there, in their soul, still alive, burning in hell, and not temporarily, as Oregon himself taught, but forever and ever. A lot more quotes. We've got Revelation 24, Revelation 2015. I've got a little bit of an example here of how... Now, you're probably wondering, well, you know, if those who deny the eternity of hell, because they deny the immortality of the soul, and they deny the immortality of hell because they can't reconcile that in their own minds with their own concept of how God should be merciful... I'll give you one example of how the Jehovah Witnesses in their own New World Translation of the Bible try and grapple with these obvious contradictions to their own theology. Now, I didn't read out in full Matthew 25, 46, but basically, to go back to it briefly, then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Okay, that's Matthew 25, 46, 41 and 46. Jehovah's Witnesses, how do they grapple with this passage, for example? We have a brief look at the Greek here. Very simple look. In the Greek of this verse, we find the word kolosin, which is derived from kolosu, and means to prune, rest, or punish. The Jehovah Witnesses New World Translation translates kolosin in verse 46 as everlasting cutting off rather than eternal punishment. At first instance, such a translation is defensible as cutting off is akin to prune. However, the same New World Translation translates another derivative of kolosu, namely kolosontai, in Acts 4.21 as to punish. So here there's an obvious inconsistency. When grappling with this word, kolosin, which is derived from kolosu, and saying kolosontai, which is derived likewise from the same root, they'll give different translations to the root word. They say in one sense, in one, in one example, yes, it only means to prune or to cut off, give you, to, to try and reinforce the idea that the pruning and cutting off just means you die and your hell is the grave and it's the end of you. You know when you prune and cut off a branch from a tree, what happens to it? It dies and it disappears. And that's all that happens to you. They refuse to translate it as eternal or everlasting punishment because that term, punishment, connotes something continuous. Okay? But they don't have any hesitation in Acts 4.21 to translate kolosu or kolosin as to punish. So there's an obvious, you can see there, the, the real scripture scholars would see this as really more than just an amateurish failure but really an agenda-driven mistranslation. Moving on, fourth objection. All souls are annihilated at death, but for good, the good are recreated at the end of the world for heaven or earthly paradise. Okay? So this view, just to get it clear in our minds, is that everyone when they die is annihilated, is extinguished, but the good are also the good are also extinguished. But they will rise again at the end of the world, be reunited with their bodies, and will enjoy uh, heaven with God, or in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, most of their the saved actually enjoy earthly paradise on earth forever. Well, is this is this acceptable? This view. On the contrary, the following sample, and I mean sample because there's a lot more, of scriptures prove that the souls of the just continue to live on and receive their ultimate reward immediately after death. The Catholic Church asserts that one, all souls, and here in the case of the just, live on immediately after death and after their particular personal judgment before Christ are going to receive immediately their reward or punishment 
And the case of the justice is very clear. Let's look at the Old Testament first. The book of wisdom, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died. How appropriate, and I think that applies to our critics tonight. I repeat that. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died. And their departure was thought to be an affliction. And they're going from us to be their destruction. But they are at peace. So this verse by itself, I mean, of course, this is a part of the Old Testament that only Catholics and Greek Orthodox accept as canonical, the Book of Wisdom. Okay, so it's convincing for us, it's conclusive for us, but we, let's look at the New Testament. Okay, how can the, so let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 10, St. Paul. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. How could St Paul desire to be away from the body and at home with the Lord if he believed that the soul even of the just, the souls of the just, are annihilated at death. St Paul gives no intimation that in, in his heart, this is his own personal struggle. He wants to be in heaven. He wants to be with Christ. He wants to be there now. Okay? But he knows he's also got his obligations in his missionary work towards the, the various churches, the communities that he has founded. And he's thinking, I desire to be away from the body. But does he say, I want to be away from the, desire to be away from the body so I can have a rest in the grave or be annihilated or be in some sleep slumber for some period of time? No, he says, I desire to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Meaning that he expects once he dies, to be immediately with the Lord. We've got St Paul again, Philippians 1, 21-23. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, St Paul writing to the Philippians is expressing the very same internal struggle that he expressed in writing his second Corinthians. He really wants to be in heaven. And again, he's coming to the same conclusion. My desire is to depart and to be asleep now, to be with Christ, for that is far better. Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. But you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of the just men made perfect. Now, who wrote Hebrews? That's another debate. Actually, it's been debated since the 3rd century. Oregon thought it was St. Barnabas. Uh, just a little aside here. The letters of St. Paul, are, you find them in order in the New Testament according to what very scientific criteria? Their size. The biggest goes first, and then the next biggest until the smallest and the thinnest, etc. They're not in chronological order, in the order he wrote them. They're just in order according to their size. It's almost as if you can imagine one of these early, very early church fathers had them stacked on his shelf as separate books, and he thought the nice way to, to list them is according to size, the thickest ones first. But Hebrews, which is very thick, is at the end. Why? Why is it traditionally at the end and not in this same order? Because they're not sure whether he wrote it or not. Now, I am by no way, shape or form an expert in the Greek. And so it is very safe to say that we're not sure who wrote it. But whoever wrote it, what are they saying? How can there be an assembly of the firstborn and the spirits of just men made perfect in the heavenly Jerusalem if the soul is annihilated at death. Impossible. Alright. Well, we're making good time here. Come up to our last objection. Now, our last objection actually is not from our traditional opposition Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists. It's a Opposition that's going to be from a far more deadly and widespread problem that's growing in the modern age, which is secularism and atheism. Okay. Now I haven't. Give, I'm going to throw this in here just as a little, you know, really as a, an appendix. It's something we need to develop and work on a lot, lot more for the future challenges that are arising in our midst as we speak. You can't have debate with an atheist that, uh, without them debunking the existence of all things spiritual. They not only reject the existence of God as a spiritual being, and of course they reject the existence of angels as childish, superstitious. They also reject emphatically the existence of the human soul. Now, I saw this last year. I attended Macquarie University again. There was another debate, and the Cardinal was speaking, and he was arguing with a fellow, debating a fellow. His surname, I forget his first name, but his surname was Barker. And he was actually, you'll be surprised at this, Barker was for 19 years an evangelical Protestant minister. Now he's an evangelist, in inverted commas, for atheism. He's emphatic, and all his supporters there that day were absolutely emphatic the human being has no soul at all. They are materialists. This is what a materialist is. They do not accept the existence of anything spiritual. All our powers and functions, appetites and desires are based 
rest in organic powers only, organs of our body. Okay? I'll touch on, I'll elaborate on this a little bit more in, the, in a few moments. Now, the Catholic Church, on the other hand, considers the human person to be a unity of body and soul, as we stated earlier, and that the soul is spiritual in nature. And because it's spiritual, it doesn't have component parts. It does not occupy space. And in that sense, it's what we call simple. Because our souls, according to Catholic teaching, don't have parts and don't occupy space, they can't break down like the body does. And that's one of the primary reasons why we believe that the human soul is immortal. It lives on because by its very nature, it's not made of any physical component parts. It, doesn't, it can't break down. The Catholic Church also looks at what we can do and analyse that we do so many things that are not material in their nature. Activities such as reasoning, reflecting, willing. These actions are spiritual. They are not material actions. When we reflect, we're thinking about things in the past. When we're willing, it's not a function of matter. The decision itself is not material. It's a spiritual thing. It's non-material. Let's not yet call it spiritual. We just call it non-material at the moment. How can we ask this question? How can a human have ideas and understand and understand non-material concepts such as truth, justice, hope, love? We can not only do things that are in essence non-material, but we can understand things that are non-material. How can we do such things if we are only a material per body, a material being? A human can only have spiritual ideas and understandings if we ourselves have a spiritual side a non-material, spiritual side, which we call traditionally the soul, the spiritual soul. The irony for materialists, and I do recommend the book I read last year, Patrick Madrid, The Godless Delusion, he focuses a lot on this aspect. The irony is that the materialists, in their denial of the spiritual, are actually using spiritual powers that they themselves have inherently, to deny the spiritual. Their very denial of the spiritual is a spiritual act, a non-material act. Materialists are still struggling as to why there exists self-consciousness, thought, the ability to understand non-material concepts. For them, they can only retreat into one corner. All these abilities these actions, these powers, these functions rest in the complexities of our material maker. Really, it's they're just a function of molecular structures, very complex. 
Now, we need to do a lot more study here. We need to do a lot more reading and writing in this realm because this is going to be the greater apologetics challenge in the years ahead of us. Interesting, this gentleman died just last year, Andrew Flew. I think his first name's Andrew. Well, Flew, F-L-E-W, was actually one of the world's most renowned atheists. And he looked at the human genome. He saw the complexity of it. A whole um, genetic makeup, the structure. He realized it's so incredibly complex and designed. Well, sorry, so incredibly complex, it could only have been designed. It's not by any way, shape, or form possibly formed by mere chance. Blind evolutionary processes, positive mutations complexifying over the eons. So he ends up writing a book before he dies. There is no, there is no God, but the word no is crossed out on the front cover. He dies, though, more of a deist than a theist, meaning that he dies believing there's a God who's the author of all creation, but his God remained impersonal, distant. Not the God of Christianity, who's father and loving and sent Jesus Christ into the world to dwell among us. But at least, in all good conscience, he made a move in a better direction before he died. Materialists are still struggling, though, as to why there exists self-consciousness, thought, etc., as I said. For Christianity, it is clear. Consciousness and personhood exist because God created human beings in his image and likeness. Humans have a created ability to know, understand, judge and love that simply reflects our creator, who is himself knowledge and love. Alright, well that's all I have to say tonight. We'll formally finish there. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au